you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, uh, verses 57 to 68. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll uh, present the words on the screen for you. Uh, But just by way of introduction, I mean, why do we read the Bible? Why do we have sermons? Why do we uh, sit and take uh, 30, 35 minutes uh, to listen to some guy uh, talk about and explain the Bible? Well, if you're visiting here this evening, we do that because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that in the history that it recounts, in the poetry that's contained within it, in the prophecy that's there, in the the Proverbs and wisdom literature and all of these things, we believe that this is God speaking to us. And wonderfully, uh, marvelously, we believe that as God speaks to us, He speaks to us a word of grace. In a world in which we are constantly uh, um, just under pressure, as we open the Bible, uh, as we hear the word preached, God speaks to us a word of grace, not as some sort of ethereal concept, but he speaks to us a word of grace personified, grace in his son. And so that's my hope that we'll uh, see that together as we look at Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help now as we consider these words. Dear Jesus, as we come to this passage, as we come under your word, Lord, it's my prayer that you would help us to see that you are, as the scriptures say, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who is slain, and yet you are the Lamb who sits in the midst of the throne and is worshipped by the angels and countless people. We pray, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are the one who has both been humbled and you are the one who has been exalted. Help us to see this from this passage and to worship you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
one of the uh, many accomplishments of my dear wife, Suzanne, is that she uh, uh, possesses a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture. And when we first started dating 17 years ago, there were two things, uh, even though we had known each other for uh, several years, I needed to make sure that I had straight now that we were uh, actually dating. And the first was how to actually pronounce her last name properly. Uh, was it Kniba, Knibi? I mean, I was, I was like, if this thing's going anywhere, I better make sure that I've got this clear. The second thing I wanted to make sure was that I knew what exactly a landscape architect did. Because I quickly came to learn from Suzanne that landscape architecture is a bit of a misunderstood uh, vocation. Oftentimes, people will hear that Suzanne's uh, trained as a landscape uh, architect, and they assume that she's uh, trained in uh, gardening, and so they quickly ask for help as to where they might place plants or make their house uh, look a little nicer on the outside. But that, I'm told, is not what landscape architects are trained to do. They're trained to design large-scale green spaces like parks and playgrounds and stuff like that uh, to make sure that, that they look good. But people hear the title and they misunderstand what exactly it means. And so their misplaced assumptions lead to misguided expectations. Maybe you've experienced this before, either professionally or personally. Jesus experienced this. A recurring problem uh, in the accounts of Jesus' life is that people frequently misunderstood what it was that the Messiah or the Christ, uh, as it is in, in Greek, uh, what the Messiah would do. When they heard the title Messiah, the people thought pomp and power. They thought of a mighty conqueror and slain enemies and ticket tape parades. As one scholar puts it, the dominant popular hope was of a king like King David with a role of political liberation and conquest. But such visions of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah were mistaken, as we're going to see tonight. And it's important for us to consider what it means for Jesus to be the Christ because there's just as much confusion as uh, to what that means today. And this confusion isn't a small thing, a small matter, because the Bible tells us that it's only by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life in his name. So quite plainly, getting clear about Jesus, getting him right, so to speak, is the difference for us between eternal life and eternal death. In Matthew, Jesus' disciple, his biographer, he wants to help us to see Jesus clearly. And in this, his record of Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, he wants us to see that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, but also he wants us to see that his messianic role is contrary to what we might expect or assume. Our passage tonight shows us that Jesus is declaring himself to be the long-awaited ruler and rescuer of God's people, but it shows that as Messiah, his rescue and his reign are accomplished in an unexpected way. So our text shows us that Jesus is the long-awaited ruler and rescuer of God's people who first suffers to save. He first suffers to save. And I want us to see that this evening by looking first at the conspiracy against the king, and then the identity of the king, and then thirdly, the surprising nature of his kingship. Now the gospel, Matthew, uh, gospel writer Matthew has a purpose for sharing his eyewitness testimony concerning Jesus. He wants his readers to see that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And he wants 
his readers to see that Jesus as the Messiah didn't just spring out of nowhere. He came as the fulfillment of prophecies that have been recorded throughout the Jewish scriptures of a coming king, a rescuer and ruler who would save God's people from their sins and more than that, set the world right again. And because Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was the long-expected Christ, he often points out how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, things prophesied hundreds of years before. All throughout Matthew's gospel account, we read things like, well, such and such took place in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. In fact, in the section immediately preceding our text tonight, we read of two such fulfillments. Jesus had just finished celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, and then he had gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray about his impending death. And it's there in the garden, under the cover of darkness, that Jesus' friend Judas betrays him. He leads an armed uh, mob to arrest Jesus and turn Jesus over to the religious leaders who sought to kill him. Now, what's important for our purposes this evening is to note that Jesus surrendered himself to this mob willingly. When Simon Peter, one of uh, Jesus' friends, one of his disciples, uh, takes a swing at one of the mob with a sword, Jesus admonishes him, saying, Peter, don't you realize that I could ask my Father in heaven and he would send legions of angels down in my support and just vaporize these guys? He said, but I must go that the scripture might be fulfilled. And with that, Jesus' closest friends scurry into the shadows of the night and Jesus was led off to Caiaphas' house. And that's where we see him this evening. Jesus doesn't run. He doesn't fight. He doesn't take advantage of any of the privileges that belong to him as the Son of God. Instead, he's dragged as a prisoner before Caiaphas, the high priest, to be tried. And outside in the courts of Caiaphas's home, you can actually see what archaeologists believe to be the remains of Caiaphas's home. If you just YouTube it, the servants and the armed guards warm themselves by the fire. And Peter, Jesus' friend, had slipped in with the crowd as well. And Matthew puts it rather fatalistically, saying that Peter had come to see the end. And inside, Jesus was examined by Caiaphas and a group of other religious leaders. Now, commentators have said various things on the legality of Jesus' appearance before Caiaphas. There's been debates. Was this an official trial? How irregular uh, was it? These are details that we're not going to uh, belabor, belabor this evening because the one thing we need to get from this is that the outcome of this trial or this examination was never in doubt. Now, if you know anything about the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you know that the scribes and Pharisees were always grumbling about Jesus. And by this point, they had long since been fed up with Jesus. And they had plotted, as Matthew tells us already earlier in his gospel, how they could arrest Jesus and how they could put him to death. And though the, the uh, verdict is um, certain these religious leaders are still seeking to cloak the proceedings in some degree of legitimacy to, to, to show that they're uh, sort of to mask their plot, if you will. If they were looking to get dirt on you or I, no doubt they would be able to find that if they just worked hard enough. 
But it's not so easy uh, to find dirt on the only sinless person to ever walk the face of planet Earth. And so Matthew somewhat uh, uh, humorously writes, and so though many false witnesses came forward, uh, uh, none could bring a credible charge. At long last, however, two witnesses did come forward. And though what they reported wasn't uh, strictly accurate, it was close enough for these uh, uh, religious leaders to get what they wanted. These two witnesses claimed that Jesus had said he was able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, what you need to know is that to speak against the temple of God was a big deal. This was the place where God dwelt with his people. So to speak against the temple, which was so closely associated with God, was to speak against God himself. Now, John's gospel records the words in question, though, for us. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, John records. John goes on to explain that Jesus was not speaking about the physical temple, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body. See, with these words, Jesus was actually predicting his death and resurrection. But Caiaphas saw this as his opportunity. He got up and he began to press Jesus for a response. Perhaps if you're a movie lover, you can think of the famous scene from A Few Good Men. You recall Tom Cruise's character in an act of desperation. He's in the the, the courtroom and he goes after Colonel Jessup, uh, who's on the witness stand, and he gets in his face and he says, did you order the code red? He's yelling, he's in Jessup's face, he's goading him into exposing his guilt. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? You might remember the scene. Only here, Jesus is innocent and he remains silent. Even as men falsely accuse him and revile him, Jesus does not speak. This is just as Isaiah the the prophet prophesied 700 years beforehand of the Messiah. When he wrote, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, incidentally, just sort of as a a sidebar here, I want us to notice the holy self-control of our Savior. Have you ever had people falsely accuse you of things? Maybe malign your character? If you have, you know it's not a pleasant experience. It's quite painful. If you've been in such a a situation, you know that feeling of, of just being vexed at the injustice. It isn't right, you think to yourself. People are forming false judgments against me that are based upon lies. Every instinct in you wants to tear apart their arguments and say, you're wrong, you're lying, here's why, check the receipts. But not Jesus, not here. It recalls what Peter would go on to write many years later, perhaps with this very scene in mind. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God who judges justly. Jesus endured the reviling of false judgments of men because he rested in the true judgment of God. Now this, Peter says, is what we're called to since Christ has suffered for us and left us an example. I do want to be clear 
The Bible doesn't say it's always wrong to defend uh, ourselves. Uh, there are times and places and circumstances where that is the right thing to do. But I think, at least if I examine my own heart, that far too often that is far too quickly my response. And our Savior here sets an example for us of enduring unjust suffering patiently and without responding in turn. Well, eventually Caiaphas presses Jesus. I adjure you by the living God. In other words, I'm placing you under oath. Tell us if you're the Christ. Tell us if you're the Messiah. And being placed under a legal oath, Jesus is required to answer. And he said, you've said so. Now this is sort of an indirect uh, statement, but in the context of Jesus' remarks, it's clear that Jesus is agreeing with Caiaphas's question. This is the same question, uh, answer rather that, that uh, Jesus gave to Judas earlier in this chapter when Judas asked Jesus, am I the one who's going to betray you? With this answer, Jesus is saying that he is the Christ. And if there's any question as to that, you can go to Mark's account of this scene. And, and Mark adds that Jesus also answers with a more definitive, I am. But Jesus is quick to clarify what he means in verse 64. Because as, as I've already noted, the term Christ or Messiah was susceptible to being misunderstood or hijacked for various purposes. The expectations of the Jews in that day, was that the Messiah would come and that he would bring uh, political liberation from the Jewish people, uh, or from the Jews' uh, religious, or sorry, rather, um, uh, their, their political overlords, from the Romans who occupied uh, their land. They were expecting God to send a king who would establish an earthly throne and an earthly kingdom through earthly means for earthly glory. Now, having misplaced expectations about what Jesus came to do, however, is not limited to Jesus' contemporaries. People today might not be looking for a military conqueror, but both inside and outside the church, people very easily come to understand the reason for Jesus' coming in very worldly and misguided terms. People might be looking for a health and wealth Christ, that Jesus came to make me prosperous and give me a pain-free life, a full bank account, a happy marriage, a good job. Then there's the therapist Jesus. Jesus came to make me feel better about myself and my circumstances, to give me encouragement to be a, a better a worker, a better person, a better, better husband or father. There's the Christian nationalist Jesus. Jesus came and, and he's going to have his kingdom advanced by taking over government and exercising political tools. There's the transformationalist Jesus. Jesus came to make our institutions more just, our wealth more evenly distributed, our water cleaner, our trade fairer. Now here's the thing. Not all of these things are wrong or bad. It's not inherently bad to have peace or prosperity or want to vote for Christians with biblical conviction, nor is it wrong to want to see society become more just. But in these cases, like the Jews in Jesus' day, it becomes so easy to look for someone who is going to address our immediate felt needs. And to do this while ignoring the deeply felt spiritual crisis that not, uh, not only afflicts me as an individual, but the entirety of creation. 
We've got a, a tendency to diagnose our greatest problems as those which are the ones we can see right in front of us. And it's because of this very tendency that Jesus is quite selective about when he refers to himself as the Christ. When, for example, Peter, in, uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. When Jesus was speaking of himself, he most often preferred another title from the Old Testament. He preferred the title, the Son of Man. And he uses that description again here in verse 64. And when he uses this term, he's not using it to identify his human nature in contrast with his divine nature, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Rather, he uses the Son of Man title as part of his messianic identification. He uses the title, in other words, to say something not about what he is, but something about who he is, about his identity and about his authority. The Son of Man was still a messianic title, but it allowed Jesus to say something about uh, who he is with a title that was less encumbered by the baggage of bad assumptions. This way, Jesus uh, could more freely explain, this is who I am, this is what I came to do. Now, you might be familiar with this, but the Son of Man was a title taken out of the Old Testament and specifically out of the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7. And there, as, as part of a vision, the prophet Daniel receives from God a, a, a vision of a, a Messiah figure who's identified, in Daniel's words, as one like a son of man. And this son of man, majestically, he comes with the clouds of heaven, Daniel says, and he's presented before the throne of God, and he's given dominion over an eternal kingdom. And according to the Old Testament, the son of man was a figure who had divine authority, and who had received universal supremacy. And he had received this dominion from God, from the ancient of days. And then the Son of Man sits on a, a seat of rule and judgment to judge the enemies of God. And so when Jesus, using his favorite title, speaks of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven, he's making a bold claim. He's saying that he is far more than the political or military Christ that so many people both then and now are looking for. He was so more than the Christ that just met the people's felt needs. Jesus is saying that one day they will see that he exercises a heavenly, a divine authority in which he would rule and reign over an eternal kingdom. With these words, Jesus is saying, I'm not the Messiah you expect, but I am the Messiah. And it's clear from the reaction of the high priest as he tears his robes and utters the charge of blasphemy. They understood. This was exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming not just to be the solution to some pressing predicament of the day, but he was claiming divine authority. So we need to stop here for a moment to consider Jesus' claim. Because the trial of Jesus forces us to make an important decision. Indeed, there are, are a few more important decisions that we, that we must make than this one. Is Jesus who he says he is? 
Very few people argue against the historical existence of Jesus. That's a, a fact that's genu- uh, genuinely, or generally conceded by even the most ardent opponents of Christianity. But the question which we must answer is this. Can Jesus be trusted? Can Jesus be trusted when he says that he's the promised Christ? Can Jesus be trusted when he says that he's the long-awaited ruler and rescuer of God's people? But as we answer this question, here's what you can't do. You can't avoid Jesus' claim. You can't treat Jesus like some crazy uncle when you just say, oh, well, he just kind of says things like that. But when you kind of get past that, he's kind of a nice guy. That's not what we can do. We can't say that Jesus is just some nice example or good teacher. We need to deal with Jesus on his own terms, using his own words. We need to ask, is Jesus who he says he is? Does he sit at the Father's right hand sharing his authority? Does he rule over a kingdom that will have no end? Is he the long-awaited Messiah who will usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace? Jesus thinks he is. And the question for us tonight is, do you? Now, this, of course, is a famous argument put forward by C.S. Lewis. Jesus makes stupendous claims about himself, such stupendous claims that either he is a horrific liar, a raving lunatic, or he is exactly who he says he is, Lord. And if he's Lord, then he must be obeyed. And if he must be obeyed, then he must be trusted in. Because he tells us that we are to believe in him, believe in him whom God has sent, namely Jesus. Sometimes we encounter decisions that we just can't get around. Think, for example, the decision as a parent of where am I going to send my kids to school? Right? Eventually, they're going to be school age. You can't punt the decision any longer. You've got to decide. Right? Maybe you've had decisions like that. Well, this is that type of question only far more important. Jesus had said that he's the promised rescuer and ruler, that he's the Christ. Now, either you'll take him at his word and submit to him, or you'll not, but there's no delaying the decision. The Jewish leaders, of course, make their decision as to who Jesus is, and in one sense, it's a surprising reaction. Surprising in this sense. Have you ever waited for something for a really long time? Our family, of course, has waited for something for a long time uh, recently, the arrival of our fourth child three weeks ago. I'm not always good at waiting. Uh, While we were dating, uh, Suzanne and I spent five months apart while uh, she was in Europe and I trudged through a miserable existence in my second year of, of university. It was miserable. I literally counted down the days for Suzanne to return. And how do you think I felt when I was at the airport, it was the day she's coming back, uh, she's coming out of the terminal, what do you think I did? How do you think I responded? I was ecstatic. I may have even kissed her. Isn't that exactly what you would expect from someone in my shoes? There's nothing surprising about what I did. What would be more surprising is if Suzanne showed up I go and I greet her, I I grab her luggage from her hands, and then I dump her luggage out on the floor of the airport, and then I slap her across the face. 
Now, for the record, I would never do that, okay? It would be absolutely wrong. Uh, you, but if I did, you would think I lost my mind, right? This guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What on earth is he doing, right? It'd be inexcusably wrong, but it would be so jarring, right, with the expectation. Someone who was waiting, wanting to be done with phone calls and notes, wanting, waiting for this day to come. But isn't that exactly what we see in our passage? For over a thousand years, the Jewish people had been looking forward to the promised Messiah, to the one who would redeem God's people from their sin, rescue them from their enemies, rule over them in, uh, with righteousness and in peace. And at last he's here, right there in Caiaphas, the high priest's house. The hope of Israel come at last. And what do they do? They don't bend the knee in submission. They don't embrace him or worship him, falling down on their faces, but they condemn him. They strike him. They spit on him. Mark's account tells us that they covered his face as they struck him and taunt him, saying, tell us who hit you, Christ. It almost defies the imagination. In fact, it's such a, a disgraceful reception that we're left to ask, why should this even happen at all? If Jesus is, is the Christ, then why should he subject himself to this kangaroo court? Why didn't he just come riding on the clouds, as Daniel's prophecy said, to bring about his kingdom that way? Now, theologians will sometimes speak of Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation refers to his descent, his humbling himself, coming down from heaven uh, to the point of his death. His exaltation refers to his resurrection, his ascension, uh, his being seated at the Father's right hand to judge the world and his return. Now, if Jesus was the Christ, why should he endure the shocking maltreatment that belonged to his humiliation at all? Why not come straight away? in the exalted glory, which he refers to in his answer to Caiaphas. But this again is where our assumptions as to what the Christ is need to be clarified and corrected. Jesus' kingdom is brought about not by a sword, but by a cross. The way up to his throne was by going down to a grave. But why? I suppose it wasn't strictly necessary for it to be this way, but keep in mind this. Part of the Son of Man's job was to exercise the authority of divine judgment. As the divine king, the Son of Man comes to bring his judgment against all those who stand in opposition to God. And installed on the judgment seat of heaven, the Son will exercise his authority by commending the righteous and condemning sinners. The only problem is that we are all sinners, every single one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as the Apostle Paul writes. By nature, as sinners, we belong to a kingdom that is opposed to God and to his Christ. We'd be fine with God telling us what to do, just as long as God only tells us the things that we want to do. We resist his authority. We resent his authority. And so it's perhaps conceivable the Son of Man could have foregone his humili this humiliating scene that we read about in our passage. It's perhaps conceivable that he could have come 
with his angels in the full glory of his exalted rule. Perhaps he could have come to issue judgment not to endure it, to crush his enemies not to be crushed by them. But friend, if Jesus had come like that, it would not be good news. It would be dismal, terrifying news. For if he had only come in the might of his exaltation and and the office that that was, it would bring the judgment that you and I, beloved, that we surely deserve. We'd be in the crosshairs of divine judgment and God does not miss. For every lie, for every selfish act, for every angry word, every impure thought or action, every ungrateful response, you and I would stand in the judgment guilty of sin to receive sin's just punishment, eternal death. But that's not what happened. Jesus the Messiah came, first of all, not as the mighty judge, but as the suffering servant. His kingdom was entered into not by blows given, but by blows received. The exaltation of Christ without the humiliation of Christ would mean judgment. It was only through, only, only exaltation rather, through humiliation would mean salvation. Now don't be mistaken, the Son of Man will still come in judgment. Jesus says in John 5, and the Father has given the Son authority, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And elsewhere, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. But as our text shows us, Jesus did not come first in judgment. First he came, he came willingly. He endured this lowly condition for your sake and for mine to save sinners. He came to bear our sins, to take our punishment. He stood in our place. His innocent ears, hearing words of condemnation that we deserved so that we might hear words of divine acceptance. The result is that the Son of Man's coming in glory, as He shall, as He shall, when He comes in glory to exercise His judgment, it will not be a dreadful day for His saints, but a glorious one. The penalty for our sins paid, our guilt removed, His righteousness ours, all because Jesus was a Christ, a ruler, a rescuer, who chose to come in humility before He came in glory. So how should we respond to this? Well, let me summarize with two very brief points of application. Believe the king, love the king. First, believe the king. Our text calls us to take Jesus at his word. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised rescuer and ruler through whom God would reconcile the world. And in prayer, maybe with a friend, maybe just in, in, in the privacy of your, home, your own home, just confess to him, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, help me believe. Help me to see you for who you really are. Believe the king. And secondly, love the king. See his great love for you. Enduring shameful derision, disdain, abuse for a sinner such as yourself. 
bombarded with gross lies and false accusations, berated, yelled at, put on trial, physically assaulted, the sentence of death ringing in his ears. But constrained by love for his own, he silently, he resolutely endured it all for your sake and for mine. So that when he does come, and he will come and it will be glorious, when he does come to exercise his judgment, we will be vindicated of guilt and spared from death. Does that not move your heart toward him? So believe the king, love the king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you gave your son in love for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you came not in your first coming to judge the world, but to save and rescue sinners. Lord, this is our only hope. And so, Lord, I pray for every person within the hearing of my voice that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would give the gift of saving faith to see Jesus, not as a mere figure of history, not as someone just to make life better, but they would, that we would all see Jesus through the eyes of faith as the Savior who suffered for our sins, that we would believe upon Jesus, that we would love Jesus, and that our lives would be given for him. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me as we sing our song of response, celebrating the Son of Man who was humbled yet exalted. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious.
People of God, receive now the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's close by singing By the Sea of Crystal.